Good morning, listeners, and I hope today finds you well. My name is Wilson McCoy with the College Hills Church of Christ here in Lebanon, Tennessee, and I want to say a big thank you for listening in to our weekly radio broadcast. Please know that you are always welcome to come and visit us at 1401 Leeville Pike here in Lebanon, Tennessee. We'd love to have you as a visitor at one of our on-campus services, and if that's not possible, we would love for you to join us with one of our online services. You can find out more information about the times that we worship together, the times our classes meet on Sunday and Wednesday, if you go to collegehills.org. There you can find more information about our church, when we meet, how you can get connected, and if you ever happen to miss one of our worship services, one of our radio or pulpit sermons, we also have links in our media section for you to access those in the archives, and hopefully that can be a blessing to you in some way. Last week, we began a series that's going to take us through the summer, and we're calling our summer series A Summer of Sin, Seven Ways to Ruin and Redeem Your Life. Maybe not the sermon theme and series that you were expecting, but I think that it is important for us to reflect on this theme that we see throughout Scripture and the ways in which it is talked about and discussed and think about what we can learn not just from Scripture but from the deep traditions of our church that hopefully can give us wisdom and insight not just about paths for us to avoid but also paths for us to move in in holy and healthy ways. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this topic from a variety of different angles. Today we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture, and I would encourage you to have your Bible out or have a notepad out that you can jot some notes and look at these passages later. But we're going to begin with the passage that's going to be the very last one that we reference in this series of references. And the passage that I want to begin with is a passage from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you have once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this new day, for this new week, for the gift of the scriptures that guide us and give us wisdom and insight into who you are and into who you're calling us to be. I pray today that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching and that you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and be transformed by it more into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, I stumbled into a habit that very first summer that I could drive that would change my life forever. During that summer, like most teenagers, I looked for any opportunity to get on the road once I had my license. I would run errands for my mom, ask to drive to church, and look for trips just around town so that I could get behind the wheel and drive. One night when I was feeling adventurous, I asked my parents if I could drive to my aunt and uncle's house about 20 minutes away. I grew up in Clarksville. They lived in Pleasant View, and so I asked them if I could drive down 41A on one of these beautiful Tennessee summer nights if I would call them when I got there and call them when I left. By a miracle, they said yes, and so on that hot summer evening, I headed down that beautiful Tennessee country road where my relatives lived. And I loved that first night of driving there. I remember windows rolled down while the warmth of summer and the smell of tobacco fields filled my car. I remember the fading Tennessee summer glowing orange and pink across the horizon as I crested rolling hills and drove past these beautiful open fields. And I remember turning in to the driveway that I had pulled into many times. And I remember pulling in next to my uncle's wood shop. This wood shop is where he built mantles, where he taught me to build mantles. And so I walked into the shop expecting what I had always seen, wood leaned up against the walls, the smell of sawdust in the air. But when I walked into the shop on this particular summer night, there was something there that I had never seen before. There in the back of this big garage was a large object covered with this old white tarp. Typically, this was an empty space in my uncle's shop, and so I was intrigued by whatever happened to be under this big, large tarp. He led me closer to it when I told him I wanted to see what was under there. And I remember him grabbing a corner of that canvas tarp and pulling back the cover with a swift movement of his arm. And I grew wide-eyed as I looked on what was obviously a classic car. It was obviously a classic car because of the general shape, but it wasn't a completed classic car. Because my uncle would go on to tell me that what I saw in front of me, this big hunk of metal that had broken headlights and rusted hoods that had missing hubcaps and missing seats from inside the car. He went on to tell me that what I saw now wasn't exactly what was going to be 
in hopefully the next few months. He told me that this car that I was looking at was a 1967 Mercury Comet. He had recently purchased it and he had planned to restore it over the course of the next year. I remember walking around the car with him, surveying the rusty doors and faded hubcaps and how it was hollow inside, and I listened to him explain to me his plans for restoring it back to its original condition. We stood in the shop for a while talking about his plans and dreams for the car, and when he left, he told me that I should come back as he made progress on the project. So later, I drove out of that gravel driveway, but I couldn't help but come back. And I would the next week and the week after that, each week watching this progress that my uncle was making as he was restoring this beautiful car. And so piece by piece, visit by visit, the rusty car I glimpsed on that first night slowly underwent transformation before my eyes. And it was that experience of seeing that car on that first night and watching it transform over the next many months and eventually years. It was that experience that forever changed my life because it forever changed how I viewed God, how I viewed humanity, and how I viewed sin. That's what we can often forget when it comes to a topic like sin, is that we all have these images that we carry with us for how we imagine sin. The classic definition and one of the ways that a lot of people think about sin is simply missing the mark. So you can imagine a target with an arrow that is far from the intended center of the mark, and for some people that's how they view sin. For others, they may envision sin as this wide chasm, and on one side they stand, and on another side there's God, and there's this distance or separation, and that's how some people view sin. Still others might use other imagery that we find in Scripture, imagery like a sheep that is wandered away far from its home, and that can become a kind of image that we carry for sin. Each of those images is worth unpacking and reflecting on what it teaches us about sin. But for me, one of the primary images that I carry with sin and how I conceive it and imagine it is that of rust on a car eroding and corroding its original intention. I intentionally use the phrase original intention because it's in that first word original that we hear the word origin. And when we talk about our origin as people of faith, we need to go back all the way to the very beginning of Scripture to what is our origin story of faith. And what we find at the very beginning of Scripture is this beautiful imagery given to us about the creation of the heavens and earth, of creeping things on the ground, sun and moon and stars, birds and fish, and this beautiful landscape created by God. And what we also find in Genesis 1 
is the creation of humanity, the account of the creation of men and women. And what we're told in Genesis 1, 26-28, is that God creates humankind in His image and likeness. In the very beginning of our origin story of faith, the very first thing said about humanity is that we are created in the image and likeness of God. That God created humankind in His image, in the image of God. He created them. Male and female, He created them. And that one statement is this powerful foundation for us when we think about what does it mean to be a human in this world. And according to Scripture, the very first thing said about us is that we are created in the image of God. Now, typically, what often happens is we go a couple of more chapters into Genesis 3, and we read about what is often known as the fall, or sin entering into the world, or this act of rebellion and pride by Adam and Eve. And we find all of those things there, that there's definitely a crack in the story when we get to Genesis 3. But the way that a lot of people tell the story, it's that they start there with Genesis 3, with the mistake of Adam and Eve, with this act of rebellion. And so what ends up happening when we tell the story is we tell the story of humanity. We tell the story of you and me, starting with that failure, starting with sin, starting with rebellion. But it's important to know that the story of Scripture does not start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says that the very foundational, the most foundational thing about you and me is that we are created in the image of God. Now, if you keep reading beyond Genesis 3, what you soon find is that things have taken a tragic turn with the rebellion of Adam and Eve. They're expelled from the Garden of Eden, and then in the very next chapter, chapter 4, we read about the infamous Cain and Abel incident with murder entering into the created order, this awful act between siblings, this awful act of sin between humans. Sin is moving and shaping things in a tragic and terrible way. In fact, as you keep reading over the next couple of chapters, you kind of get this sense of the downward spiral that is happening with humanity because we read about the wickedness and evil that is rampant everywhere, so much so that God wants to do something to try to get things back to their original intention. And there is this great cleansing of humanity in order to try to start over. And as we probably know, that well-known character called Noah is the one through whom God chooses to try to restart things. And as a part of that restarting, he enters into covenant with Noah and his family. And as is the case, when God enters into covenant with people, there are parameters to the covenant, parameters to the relationship. And we read about those parameters in Genesis chapter 9. And what's really interesting is the language that is used by God in Genesis 9 describing the covenant 
between himself and Noah. Genesis 9.1 says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the air, on everything that creeps on the ground, and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I have given you green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own life blood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. And you, be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. God enters into this covenant with Noah and lays out what is and is not allowed as a part of this new relationship. And one of the things that is not allowed is murdering. Humans taking the life of other humans. God saw the tragedy of that back in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, and God is now saying, that is not the direction that I want humanity to head. But what's really interesting is that God gives a reason why he doesn't want humans taking the blood of other humans. And God's rationale, God's reasoning, is because humanity is created in his image. Because God created humankind in his image, humans should not take the life of other humans. I think this is significant for us to pay attention to. Because Genesis 9 happens after Genesis 3, which sounds very obvious numerically, but theologically it's also significant. Because here we are, after the quote-unquote fall, after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, after what is often called the great crack in this story that sets things down a course as it's not intended to go, sin entering into the world. There's a lot of ways Genesis 3 is described. But no matter how you describe them, I think it's important for us to note that in Genesis 9, God reminds humanity that they are still created in the image of God. In other words, the thing that was said about humanity in Genesis 1 is said again about humanity in Genesis 9. After the fall, after sin enters into the world, after there is this great act of rebellion, God still says that the most fundamental and true thing about humanity is that they are created in the image of God. Genesis 3 does not get rid of the image of God in you and in me. Genesis 3 does not completely extinguish the image and likeness of God that is in all humanity. The great act of rebellion by Adam and Eve does not remove the fact that we are created in the image of God. The most foundational thing, the truest thing about you and me is that we're created in the image of God. That is the primary truth 
about all of humanity. That is the primary claim of Scripture, that you and I are created in God's image. And so for me, any talk about sin has to be talked about in a secondary way, not in a primary way. Any talk about the impact of Genesis 3 has to be considered secondary to the primary things said about us in Genesis 1. Sin is a problem, but it is not the primary identity of humanity. Sin is true and real, but it is not the primary truth about who we are. The primary thing, the first thing that Scripture says is that we are created in the image of God. And I think that changes everything about the rest of the story, including how we talk about the reality of sin in the world. Now, I say it changes the rest of the story, and by that I mean the story of Scripture, because as we trace this theme of the image of God throughout the whole of Scripture, we're going to see this language used again. It's going to be used by the earliest Christians to talk about the person of Jesus. In the book of Colossians, the passage that we read several minutes ago, Paul begins Colossians with what is known as the Great Christ Hymn, where he helps the readers and the churches see and understand how they are to imagine who Jesus is, the one who lived and died and was raised again. Paul is trying to help them get a glimpse of the resurrected Lord. And this is what he says about Jesus in Colossians 1.15. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. The language that Paul uses to describe Christ to the believers is that he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when we look to Jesus, we see the clearest picture of who God is. When we look to Jesus, we see what it means to be created in the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is the prototype of humanity. He is who we are intended to be. When we look to Jesus, we see fully what it means to be created in the image of God. And as Paul continues to write his letter, he is going to come back to this theme and this word, this idea, being created in the image of God, not just to reference who Jesus is, but also to help believers understand their own reality. Because as Paul keeps writing, Paul's going to reference the baptism that believers underwent, being buried in baptism with Christ and being raised to newness of life. And when he begins chapter 3, he begins, so if you have been raised with Christ, alluding to their baptism. 
being raised out of those waters of baptism, now clothed with Christ, now clothed with the one who is the image of the invisible God. And for Paul, that means something. For Paul, that means that these believers are to live in such a way that strives for and aims to be those kinds of image bearers in the world, be the kinds of people who reflect the image of the invisible God in the same way that Jesus fully reflected the image of the invisible God. And for Paul, one of the things that means is to get rid of sin, to take off those death clothes, to take off all of those sinful practices and ways of living that once dictated a person's path and where an individual was going. Paul wants the removal of sin because the one who is the invisible image of God now clothes the believers. And we too, we too now strive to be those kinds of people in the world. And so Paul calls believers, he calls us to get rid of sin, to get rid of sin because it is this secondary way of life that leads to destruction. It doesn't lead us down a path of righteousness, but it leads us places that will not call us and lead us to good and godly destinations. And instead, Paul wants believers to clothe themselves with the new self, new practices and habits that are in alignment with the image of God that we see in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says. He says, as he keeps writing in our passage that we read earlier, as we keep reading in Colossians 3, to clothe yourself with the new self. And then he says this, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul sees our salvation process as this renewal, this renewal into the image of God that we see in Christ Jesus. Paul sees our salvation as this great restoration project where the image of God is being restored in us. And the fullest depiction, the clearest picture of what that image looks like is the person of Jesus. That when we talk about sin and salvation, God is the great restorer and renewer, bringing us back to who we were originally created to be, men and women created in the image of God. And so when I was standing with my uncle in that dusty wood shop, standing next to that big hunk of metal, it was rusted It was broken. It was corroding, and it was far from what it was intended to be. And yet, it was still a car. And yet, when my uncle looked at it, he saw a Mercury Comet. He saw what it was intended to be. He could see what was primarily true about it. 
that it was this beautiful car that was going to be in the process of being restored and redeemed, that the rust and the brokenness, that all of the ways that it was deficient were not the primary truth of what he was looking at. That the primary thing, that the fundamental thing, that the most basic thing was he was looking at this beautiful car that had yet to be fully restored. And so it is with us. We are created in the image of God. We are broken. We have rust corroding and eroding our relationships with God and with others. We have problems. We miss the mark. All of those things are true. And yet the most fundamental truth about who we are is that we're created in the image of God. And God, the great restorer and renewer, is working towards bringing us back to who we were always created to be. And so we can be open and honest and name the ways in which sin is present in our life, the way it lurks, the way it erodes and corrodes us, the way it breaks us and breaks relationship. And we should do whatever possible to remove those sinful practices because they don't lead us to a path of right relationship with God and others. But instead, let us remember the truest thing about us, that we are created in the image of God. And let us trust that God is the great restorer who is renewing in us who we were always created to be. Amen.